Welcome to the Yale University Press podcast. I'm Jessica Hollihan, and my guest today is the writer, critic, professor, and architect Vitold Rybczynski. Vitold has written about architecture for more than four decades. His writing includes more than a dozen books and hundreds of articles for publications including The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New York Review of Books, and Slate, among others. His new book, titled The Story of Architecture, takes readers on a journey through architectural history from the Stone Age to today. In addition to following a sometimes meandering thread through history that nonetheless unites buildings from very different times and different places, the book also offers an eloquent introduction to the timeless art and practice of architecture. I had the opportunity to talk to Vitold for this podcast series in early 2019 about his last book with Yale University Press, titled Charleston Fancy, Little Houses and Big Dreams in the Holy City, which is a wonderful portrait of a set of unconventional homes in Charleston, South Carolina, along with their designers, builders, and planners. The story of architecture is significantly more expansive and every bit as fascinating. Vitold, your book is organized more or less chronologically. The first structure you discuss is a burial mound known as the Cairn of Barnanez on the coast of Brittany in France. The most recent building is the Brockman Hall for Opera at Rice University in Houston, Texas. There are approximately 100 buildings in the book that fill in the time span between these two, which in fact approaches 7,000 years. Given the accelerated pace of building over the course of that time, how did you manage to pace the history of architecture that you tell here, which maintains a really lovely rhythm? Uh, thank you, Jessica. I, I wanted to write a story, a, a book that, a narrative, a book that you could read. A, most histories are more like reference books, and the difference is that a reference book's a reference book emphasizes the differences between, say, Gothic architecture and Romanesque architecture, or between modern architecture and Art Deco architecture. But in a story, one looks for continuity. And I think that was the, the difference between the way I approached the subject is that I was looking for the connections between things rather than the differences. And, Sometimes the connection is the same sort of building. It, it's the way one architect or builder interprets an, a religious building compared to an earlier period, or it may have to do with a change of materials, or it may have to do with the same architects, but changing their ideas about things. So throughout the as you point out, a very long span of time, I'm trying to, to give the sense that there are connections, that it's not just radically different things, but that when, for instance, the Islamic builders build mosques, they're aware of churches. And in fact, many of the early mosques used columns from both churches and earlier Roman buildings. So, so there's a thread that goes through, and that's what I try to point out in the story. I was surprised to learn, although maybe I shouldn't have been while reading the book, that you're actually not a huge personal fan of all the buildings you write about. That is, the book isn't Vitold Rybczynski's favorite buildings. Can you give an example of a building that you included that isn't a personal favorite and talk about why you felt it was important to include in your story? Uh, you're quite right. It is. I, I I did set out to try to find which buildings were important in the story that I should talk about, but that wasn't a question that I liked all the buildings. I think one of the buildings that I'm I haven't seen but I'm skeptical of is the the CCTV building in Hong in uh, Beijing, uh, which was built relatively recently by Rem Koolhaas's firm, the Office for Metropolitan Architecture. And uh, Koolhaas was very self-consciously trying to build a skyscraper, which was unlike any skyscraper that had been built before. And the, the Chinese wanted a tall building. They wanted a landmark sort of building. And 
What he produced is certainly unlike any previous tall buildings. Uh, it is 50 stories tall, so it's not by no means a short building, but it's, 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 it, you know, it's hard to describe in words. It looks like a sort of media strip. Uh, it has, it's a continuous vertical and horizontal pieces that cantilever out. It, it's dramatic. It's also kind of spooky in a way that's, that's odd for architecture. It's, it's not a building that is uplifting, say like the Empire State Building that, that looks like a very large church steeple or something shooting up into the air. It's, 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 it's an odd sort of almost gloomy kind of dark glass building uh, that unlike Coolhouse's uh, aim, which he, he stated was to revolutionize the tall office building, I think it, it, it's really a kind of odd anomaly rather than something that points to a new direction. Yeah, he, he said, didn't he, that uh, skyscraper building would never be the same again, but I don't think there's another one that from many angles looks like there's a hole in the middle. Yes, and it's very, it's actually a very expensive building. What looks kind of, to, to make it stand up, it required, I forget the exact number, but a lot more structural steel than a conventional building. And, and it's unlikely that, that that's going to happen again. On the other hand, I think it was important to include because it was part, of, it was a chapter that dealt with what, what people call starchitects. Uh, architects who have a almost a, a trademark, uh, international trademark. And of course, the reason that the Chinese chose Kulhas to build a building was they wanted something different. They wanted him to do what he did do, which was to produce a building that was unlike anything that anybody else had built up to then, which is one of the characteristics of architecture and of of a group of architects, there's probably more than a dozen architects who qualify as architects. And it's it's a new phenomenon. It's one that I wanted to talk about in the book because it, it defines certainly the most uh, spectacular architecture of our time. Right. And one of the shifts that, that occurs over the history that you cover in the book is that the, the earliest buildings, of course, don't generally have an architect whose name is associated with the building as its creator. And so in those chapters, the buildings themselves really are the main characters. Um, but by the final chapters, the buildings you talk about were designed by architects we know a lot about, you know, the architects and even others who, you know, before the term architect came to be are, uh, are people whose biographies have been written. Um, do you think that knowing about the life and temperament of a building's architect necessarily changes the way you think about the building? I think it, it might up to a point. I think uh, it's probably not not as much as as the media would would have us believe especially uh, in the modern period because as you point out in the in ancient times we sometimes know the name of the architect with the person considered the first architect is is an egyptian and we we assume he was the architect but we don't know a lot about him and we don't know a lot about what that entailed what he, what exactly he did as opposed to the craftsmen who were involved in the building. And the same applies to some of the architects who are, whose names we know from the classical Greek period. But, but there is a point where the architect emerges and we know more about architects. And then eventually it changes again because in most modern buildings are designed by teams of people. Architectural offices today have hundreds, sometimes thousands of employees. Sometimes they're working in many offices around the world. And so it's not possible to really talk about a Norman Foster building as if he was working alone and in charge of everything. He, he has a very large office now. So the relationship of architect as a kind of creative artist changes over time. And there are architects who uh, who seem to either 
keep smaller offices or keep a, a stronger hand over the projects they do, or perhaps they do less projects. Uh, and then there are other architects who have very large teams of people, and you can't, it's very hard to unravel sometimes sort of who did what uh, in a building. But certainly knowing, for instance, as we do, that there are a number of architects uh, who die rather young. And it's, it's sort of important to know that because you get the sense of here's somebody who's very talented who, who's starting out. I'm thinking, for instance, of Raymond Hood, who was designed many of the buildings in Rockefeller Center and who died very relatively young. And the history of architecture might have changed. The story would have changed if he had lived because he would have done more buildings and he would have it would have been wonderful to see what he would have come up with having done a building as good and as interesting as the Rockefeller Center building. So I do talk about when we do know about architects, they, they do enter my story because, because in many cases it's important to know for instance, what they liked, what they didn't like, what they admired, which explains why they did what they did. Right. Another thing I, that was a bit surprising to me, you mentioned that you, you haven't actually visited uh, Rem Koolhaas's donut building in Beijing, uh, and that you haven't, there are, there are other buildings that you talk about in the book that you, you haven't been to yourself in person, but all of your descriptions have this wonderful immediacy. So I was curious about your process. You know, do, do you do you envision yourself in the buildings that you haven't visited when you write about them, or you know, do you do you talk to friends and colleagues who have to get firsthand account firsthand accounts of of what it's like to be in them? Uh, if I were writing a, the story of art, I would obviously simply go to museums and see all the paintings I was writing about, and it would be not an impossible task because there is a handful of museums, mostly in North America and uh, especially in Europe, which have most of the canonic Western works of art. In, in architecture, it's more difficult. So I've, I've seen, as you say, I've, I've seen about half of the buildings that I talk about. I think what comes through in the writing and why I felt I could write about buildings is that I'm I'm trained as an architect. I'm not an art historian, and I practiced architecture for a number of years before I sort of got taken by writing and pulled in that direction. And of course, if you're designing a building, there's no building there. You're imagining something, and you're using drawings to imagine what that would be like. And uh, so, part of the training of an architect is to draw a plan, for instance, of a house, and then to imagine, what is it like to open the door, to walk into the main room, to the first room, to go down a corridor, to enter the living room, to see the garden? I mean, it's, it, that's how architects design. And so in, when I was writing about buildings that I didn't know, uh, I was, in many cases, I knew other buildings by the same architect. So I, I visited several buildings by Louis Kahn in India, although I have not seen his building in Bangladesh. But I, have, I had plans, I had photographs, but especially plans and drawings which enable you to sort of imagine going into the building the way you imagine going into a building that you're designing. It's, it's not enormously different. So I think that was an advantage that I had, and that was what I think helped me or even emboldened me to write about buildings that I hadn't actually visited in real life, but which I felt I knew something about. Mm. Speaking of, uh, of Louis Kahn's projects in India, would you talk about globalism's effect on architecture and the somewhat oppositional directions in modern and contemporary architecture that is on the one hand, architects creating buildings purely out of their own imaginations, resulting in structures that, in the words of Le Corbusier, could be anywhere. And on the other hand, architects attempting to create buildings that respond to or somehow incorporate the culture or nature or geography of a site, even if they come from a very different place and culture. Yes, the effect of, of globalization on architect, architects and architecture is, is significant. Uh, by the 
really the early 20th century, uh, you find many examples of architects who work on national scale. So for example, Bertram Goodhue started out as a architect on the East Coast, uh, but he was very influential. He designed buildings in California and is responsible in many ways for the whole revival of Spanish colonial styles that we associate with, with Southern California. Uh, he did a, a beautiful capital in Nebraska, which is state capital, which I talk about. So he was certainly working in in new geographic areas, but he was working in a country and a culture that he understood. I mean, he spoke English, his clients all spoke English, so he was able to communicate the, the, the way of life that he saw in California was certainly different than the way of life in the Northeast, but it wasn't foreign to him. And the uh, same thing with Ralph Adams Cram was the great Gothic architect of the early 20th century, built many churches around the country, but he also built Rice University in Texas. And when he went to Texas, he realized what a different sort of place it was from geographically and culturally from what he was doing before. And he didn't simply build a copy of Princeton University where he was the university architect. He built something quite different. I think the difference with globalization is that architects are going to foreign places, places where they don't speak even speak the language, let alone understand the culture, the history, the traditions. And in some ways, they're not even expected to. If you are a client in some little one of those stands in the middle of Asia, you, when you bring a European architect in, you don't want him to do something that your local architects would do. You want him to do something European or international or Western or different. So it's a very different situation even of architects building in places that they barely understand or know. I would say, Khan was a different case in Bangladesh. He spent years working on that capital building. He had at least a half a dozen visits to Bangladesh, extended visits. He also toured the country and looked at old Mughal architecture. And so by the time he was designing the building, he understood something about the culture. Obviously, he wasn't a Muslim. He wasn't a person from that part of the world. But he, the, the amount of time he spent working on the project really brought him into it. And I don't think that's the case in many of the projects where architects kind of jet in and jet out, and they're working on 20 projects in 20 different parts of the world. So it's it is, I think, a significant impact, and I don't think it's altogether a positive one. It's positive for the architects. I mean, you can't expect architects to turn down work uh, simply because it's far away, and very few architects do. Uh, and so it has broadened the reach of architecture, but I'm not sure it's made architecture better uh, in losing the that local quality uh, changes architecture. It becomes more like an international product, uh, like a car, for instance, than something local, which architecture traditionally was. And of course, there's the tendency for large projects to uh, initiate international competitions for the for the design, which probably exacerbates that. Yes, I talk about competitions a bit in the book because uh, we, the public loves competitions and clients often like competitions because it, you feel that you're going to get the best people and then you, they'll each do a different project and you'll pick the, the one you like the most. Uh, but it's, it, that's really a misunderstanding of how, architect, how architecture is made. Uh, and I give an example of a, of a building in, in India where, where the architect, in this case, Moshe Safdi, uh, goes to India and, and realizes that the site which they would like to build on is not a very good one for a number of different reasons. 
And then with the clients, they look at alternative sites and they end up choosing a different site, which obviously then influences the building in a very positive way because the architect obviously chose a site with some sense of what could go there and what could enhance the building or enhance the site. And you know, choosing a site is one of the most important things in the process of architecture. Uh, sometimes, of course, you there is very little choice. It's an urban site and it it is what it is. But in other cases where there are options, uh, it's, a, it's a part of the process that is best involving the architect who is going to, after all, design on that site. Uh, and, and that goes on. The, the discussions between architect and client are a big part of the process. What the client has an idea of the building, of what he needs, but he's not, he doesn't necessarily know what that, the implication of that in terms of what it produces in the end and discussion with the architect about that can be very positive. It can, it can modify the program. There may be things that the architect that can suggest that the client hasn't thought of uh, and vice versa. Uh, and so the competition tends to short circuit that and produces, uh, it also pro produces a situation where the architect competing with other architects is feels obliged to, to, to do something which will stand out from the crowd. Because I've been involved in judging competitions and also participating in them. And most competitions, the, the hardest thing is to get out of the first round because the first round is when the judges eliminate as much as possible and come down to one or two projects. And so surviving that elimination is what architects have to do. And the way to survive is to produce something which catches people's eye, which where the jury looks at it and say, oh, I, that looks interesting. If, if it's too complicated or if it takes too long to figure out, very often those projects won't make it to the next round. And so the evolution of a building, the way a building takes changes as the architect works on it, as he, he or she gets more information from the client, as the client reacts to the building. And in my book, it's very obvious that clients are a very important part of the process. Successful buildings depend on, on, on great clients. And so if you eliminate all that in a competition where you're actually not allowed to interact much with a client, everybody has the same set of requirements and that's part of the competition, uh, it really becomes a very uh, artificial process. And I, there's a very early competition that I talk about where the great Italian architect Bernini is brought to Paris by the king to design a new facade and section of the Louvre. Uh, and the whole thing goes wrong and it's interesting to watch how it does. And then the, in the end, the, he, he goes back to Rome, but the, the French decide they better just work with local architects. And, and the result is one of the great Baroque buildings of European history. So uh, it has, there's a long history of, of competitions, sometimes producing interesting results, but often like Sydney Opera House, which is another building I talk about, producing really problematic results where in the end, the architect actually quits. And what's built is partly his vision, and, but very much also not his vision. Another important theme in the book is the architectural revival. Would you talk a little bit about kinds of revival and, and their importance and role? Yes, it's it's something which I think is almost maybe not unique to architecture, but it's it's peculiar to architecture. And it's the result of many things, but it's the basic result is that buildings last a long, long time. And I don't mean that they last as, as, as ruins or 
you know, museum pieces. We use them for a long time. So, you know, the president still lives in the White House and Congress still meets under that dome and is likely to do so for another 100 or 200 years. That has a big impact on people because it means that people are using old buildings, not, not as antiques, they're just using them. I, I, I live in a 100-year-old loft building that was built as an industrial building and later converted into lofts to live in. So we change, some, sometimes buildings last a long time because they change and sometimes because we just like them and we maintain them and keep them going uh, as we do with the White House or any of these iconic buildings that we enjoy or, or, or simply nice buildings in a neighborhood that people like and they take care of them. And buildings need a lot of care over the years. But the result of having all this architecture around us is that periodically architects look at it and say, this is really interesting. I like this. Let's 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 explore what we can do with this kind of architecture. Maybe we can go further than the original architects went. And of course, the first great re revival was the Renaissance, when Italian, not just architects, because it was also writers and poets and dramatists and all other people, but in architecture, architects looked at the old Roman architecture mostly were ruined by then and were just and wanted to to go further with it wanted to literally revive it because it was so great it was also we must remember a part of their heritage I mean, the romans were italians in a, in a certain way of thinking and so they didn't just arbitrarily pick roman architecture it was around them it was part of their heritage and they wanted to revive it they wanted to recapture it. it was it they admired it and i think the main thing to say about revivals and there have been many many revivals since then gothic architecture uh, romanesque architecture uh, classical architecture and there but there are many reasons for revivals and critics of modern architects tend to criticize revivals they they say oh this is just nostalgia and it is part, one of the reasons for a revival is nostalgia. But there are many other reasons. For example, there are political reasons. When, when Norway, for instance, broke away from Sweden and became an independent country, there was a revival of sort of Norse, old Norse architecture, because they wanted to create an architecture that was somehow special. They wanted, they had, they were creating a new country and they needed to create an architecture that was somehow special to that country. And to do that, they looked back at an old Norwegian architecture. And uh, when the founding fathers here looked at Greek architecture, it had to do with politics. I mean, they admired Greece as the first republic, uh, and that was a big part of their admiration for Greek architecture. It wasn't, it wasn't Obviously, Greek architecture is not part of an American heritage, except perhaps for Greek Americans. But for, for the founding fathers, it was politics that, that was, I think, one of the reasons they saw that as an appropriate architecture for this, this new republic that they were building. Uh, there are also simpler reasons, I think, for revivals. One is just admiration. Uh, H. H. Richardson was one of the great American architects, and he liked Romanesque architecture. He traveled to France and sketched it and photographed it and visited it. Uh, there's no real connection between Romanesque architecture and the United States, but he just liked that architecture, and it, he thought, this is something I can ex use to build, not churches, although he built some famous churches, but all sorts of other buildings. He built warehouses and state capitals and houses. And he just liked that kind of architectural language. And of course, he expanded it. He wasn't building replicas of Romanesque buildings. He was using the elements of Romanesque architecture to build completely different kind of buildings. Um, 
The, the other reason for a revival is a sort of negative reason, which is you don't like what's going on around you, and you, you're reacting against it, and you're saying, why can't we look at something? I really like what they did at that time. Maybe that's a way out for us. Maybe we can get away from the problem of, of what we're doing that I don't like. It's a, it's a sort of, it's a reactionary position and looking at architecture from other times. And so there are many reasons for revivals, but it's, it's very much a part of our of architecture. It's part of the story of architecture. It's not an anomaly. It's actually a very regular recurring event. Uh, and, and sometimes the revival is very interested in history being accurate. But other times it isn't. It's it's kind of very, very loose. It's a kind of it's reminding you of, of say Greek architecture, but it's not trying to be particularly accurate. Uh, after all, one of our greatest public monuments is the Lincoln Memorial, which is partly based on Greek architecture, but which also is extremely original. I mean, the Lincoln Memorial, for example, has skylights. That there isn't, there's no Greek temples with skylights. The Greeks didn't know how to build them. They couldn't have built them even if they wanted to, and they didn't particularly want to, because the inside of a Greek temple was really more like a, a big deposit place. It was a safe place where they stored things. It wasn't a place for the public. Uh, Whereas the Lincoln Memorial is a building you go into. It has, it has a huge, actually not a door, just a, an opening uh, on the side, which is completely different than a Greek temple. And it's, of course, open day and night, which is one of the, I think, wonderful things about the Lincoln Memorial. You can go there at midnight, as President Nixon was said to do, and talk to Lincoln and ask him for advice. So it's, it's a... Greek building, and yet it is completely different than a Greek building. Uh, and so revivals have take many forms. They're not just about copying the past. They're about reflecting on the past, respecting the past, admiring the past. I mean, they're very complicated relationships. Uh, and it's, it's something that is, as I said, it's a recurring event in the story of architecture. Do you think that there is something sort of inherently correct about some of the earliest and most continuous themes in conventions, like, for example, the classical order of columns that has an effect on people throughout history when they interact with the building, whether or not they know anything at all about the classical order of columns? I, I, I think it does. I think, for example, I just mentioned the Lincoln Memorial and Henry Bacon, who was the architect, uh, one of the things he did, which was extremely historically accurate, was that the Greeks had many, uh, many aspects of temples were extremely subtle visual refinements. I mean, the most obvious one is the columns, which are not like posts. They have a curve. They get fatter at the bottom, but they also curve in a way that uh, it's called emphasis, and it's, it's an aspect uh, of Greek architecture. But they, there are many other refinements like that. They, the spacing of the columns at the corners is slightly smaller to sort of visually balance things out. And in fact, the columns are not vertical. The columns lean in. And Bacon did all those things in the Lincoln Memorial. And I'm personally, I'm, I'm convinced that the reason people react to the Lincoln Memorial is because of all those subtle refinements. They don't, you can't actually see them unless you, you know, go and measure things, but they, they affect you visually. They're, they're, they're wonderful. They, they make the building not mechanical. And I think people still react to that. And there are many other things. Uh, architects in the past have used ornament uh, in different ways. They've used color in buildings. They've used They've made built. They've introduced meaning into buildings through art, uh, and they've used art. I think that's an important aspect. Uh, if you look at, uh, after all, the 
the center of the Lincoln Memorial is the beautiful statue of the seated Lincoln, a work of art. Uh, and also, if you look at a Gothic cathedral, it's full of saints and representations which have to do with the religious function of that building. Uh, and so architects learn from that, and, and I think many architects have continued those traditions in more contemporary buildings. Uh, so people do react to things they see in old buildings and new buildings, and after all, all buildings are old. Once they're built, they're not new anymore. Uh, and so I don't think we should be so kind of uh, categorical about separating new and old. I think at one point, all these buildings become old, and then they, they but they're used for a long time. And I don't think it's important for people to know, for instance, that the Lincoln Memorial was built in 1930. I think when you or you're a 10 year old taken to see the Lincoln Memorial, as so many American families do, it's just a big building that's there. You, you don't need to know when it was built. You don't, you're just experiencing it. And that's one of the, I think, magic aspects of architecture is that buildings are simply experienced. They're not, they, they're not intellectual things. They make you feel good. I, I, end, I think I, I, I mentioned this at the end of the book, this sort of Hemingway-esque platitude is that a good building makes you feel good. And I think it is that simple in the end. It, it's all this combination of materials and things that look so solid and a kind of order in the building and meaning and all these things come together and you just you just feel something when you walk into Notre Dame Cathedral, for instance, or when you when you see when you approach and finally climb the steps and go into the Lincoln Memorial, it's an experience. It's a feeling that you have. It's not something intellectual that you study. It's, it's, I mean, just climbing all those steps is you literally are, you're going up and you're going, if you're going up, you're going to see something important. And if you're going up so many steps, it means it's extremely important. So it, all these things, I think, come together when we experience buildings. Well, but in the context of the longevity of buildings, you also point out in the book that some of the materials that are regularly used in modern and contemporary building, like reinforced concrete and plastic, for example, though they have allowed architects to build things that were previously structurally impossible, like skylights, uh, can be more vulnerable to various kinds of failure than some of the more traditional building materials. Do you think that there's been any shift in the public perception of even great contemporary architecture that is that it's thought of as more ephemeral because it's more fallible now than it may have been thought of hundreds of years ago? Well, I hope not because... As you point out, the, the longevity of buildings was one of the qualities of architecture. Uh, there's a, I remember reading a wonderful definition of what is a memorial, that a memorial is, is, is a, it marks the place, it tells you why this is important, and it does it forever. And, you know, doing it forever, that's why we make tombstones and grave markers out of marble and granite, because they're supposed to last. Uh, there's always something sad about a wooden cross. It's always in a cemetery because it implies they just didn't have the time or the means to do it properly. Because the, we know the wood is gonna rot and it's not gonna last. Whereas a granite grave marker, the implication is there, it's, it's going to be there a long time. There is, of course, eventually it starts to get weathered and so on. But the longevity of architecture is, is in a sense, part of the character of architecture, that uh, it's a building that will last generations, not, not years. Uh, and that, that is a problem with a lot of contemporary buildings. The other problem is, for the longest time, buildings were built out of materials that aged well. So, you know, they looked very sparkly. The, Le Corbusier wrote a building, a, a book rather, about which it was called When the Cathedrals Were White. 
and it, and it was a sort of wonderful idea, wonderful concept that at one point all cathedrals were brand new, and of course their their stone was all white. But then they age, and then they they get darker, and they acquire character. But we don't feel that it's something wrong about these old buildings or the worn stone or or the brick that looks not quite new that becomes part of the character of the building and as i said earlier all buildings require maintenance and at one point the stone is cleaned up and there, there was this famous moment in paris when i was a young architecture student roughly at that time was when they cleaned all the buildings that all these old gray cathedrals and palaces and government buildings were were clean and they became white and some people were of course very shocked by this and felt it was really bad and that it took away the character uh, but of course you you do have to maintain buildings and at some points you have to do drastic maintenance the the challenge of most modern buildings is that they only look good when they're new they don't look good when they're old and when they're renovated they they look new again there, there's sort of no in between because steel and glass and plastics they don't age very well so they're either brand new and you know very sparkly and impressive and machine-like or they start to get just tatty and unattractive uh, and, and we we there are cases of buildings from say the 50s being renovated today and all they can do is basically they become new again because modern architecture unfortunately is based on the notion of of we're doing something new and it's it's always going to look new forever of course buildings can't look new forever so uh, the best modern architecture does age some of the stone buildings and Older buildings do look okay when they get older, but uh, too many of modern materials are really not, I think, conceived of in terms of aging. They're so they're they're more like cars. I mean, cars look terrific when they're new, unless they're repainted and restored. They just rust and get old and scratched up and beat up and not terribly attractive. At, as as they get older unless they're simply restored so it is a challenge for that we face and and it what concerns me is that it it affects the very nature of architecture potentially where and if we ever start thinking of most architecture as temporary is when we will have stopped building what for thousands of years was considered architecture. It'll be more like appliances or uh, machines. And while Corbusier said a house is a machine for living in, uh, we don't really want to live in machines. We do want to live in houses. And and we do we still appreciate, obviously, old buildings, partly for their age, that they've been around a long time. Uh, we like building i mean there are still buildings that many people remember from childhood and they're still there so they're kind of witnesses to your own life and our lives have are limited in length but buildings will be there much longer and that that's a quality of architecture i think which we've always appreciated and on the theme of of maintenance and renovation i'd like to end on a question about a, a building that seems particularly dear to you, Paris's Notre Dame. In the book you write, Notre Dame was my first experience of a medieval cathedral. That was 1964, and the newly cleaned facade almost sparkled. But it was the interior that made the biggest impression. The cold surrounding stone was bone-chilling. The vast, dark space absorbed all sounds, and the columned piers disappeared into the murk that shrouded the tall ceiling. Now, as many listeners will know, there was a fire in Notre Dame in the spring of 2019 that did significant damage to the roof and parts of the vault. And you wrote on your blog at that time that arguments that were coming up against the rebuilding of Notre Dame were silly, that of course it should be rebuilt, that 
buildings are only around for eternity if each generation takes care of them. Um, what do you have? What are your thoughts now about Paris's plan to rebuild the cathedral? Well, I'm very happy that common sense has, has finally persevered and that they are in fact going to rebuild it, not to build something new on top of it, but to restore what was there. The, one of the aspects of, of the story of architecture is that that has actually happens a lot. Uh, Hagia Sophia, which is in one of the really great buildings of, of architecture of any period, uh, has this great dome. The great dome fell in about, I forget how, one or two generations after it was built and had to be rebuilt. Uh, it was rebuilt with, with changes to make it stronger, but it wasn't radically different from what had been there before. And, and there are many examples of buildings that are destroyed either by fire, if there wouldn't, or by wartime, uh, or by earthquakes, uh, and they're simply restored. They're not rebuilt and radically different. There's, there isn't, rather than thinking, we have to do it because it's being built by us, where it's going to be different than in the past. There was rather a sense, we want to restore what was there before, what, what we were used to, we liked it. And often it's the public sentiment, I think, that has driven the restoration. And I think that's what ultimately happened it with Notre Dame. I think that uh, an awful lot of architects wanted to make radical changes. There, there was talk of having a competition for a, a different sort of roof and all, you know, a green roof, a greenhouse, a water. I mean, there were all kinds of stupid ideas that were floated. And, and the French government, I think, was attracted to this, partly because, you know, Competitions create publicity. One of the reasons, I think, for architectural competitions, which architects hate, most architects really dislike the, the idea of competing. They're very expensive. They never, you never, you have to invest huge amounts of money, which you never get back. And, but if you're a museum, for instance, uh, expanding, a competition gives you lots of public relations. There's lots of publicity. Uh, it's a way of getting fundraising. Uh, and, and I think the French government saw the rebuilding of Notre Dame and, a, and, a, and an international competition with all the publicity related to that uh, as a sort of political attraction. Uh, it would, be, would bring attention to Paris, to France, and, uh, and then you would have judging, you would have exhibitions of different projects. So, so they were kind of keen on that. And I think it was the the reaction partly of historians and partly of the public who simply said, just put it back the way it was. We liked it. It, it was a beautiful building. It had a, it, there was a history. Uh, of, there was also a long history of changes. It's not a building that was built all, all of a piece in the Middle Ages. It took a couple of hundred years to build, and then there were additions made uh, in the 19th century. and. Uh, one of the one of the tall steeples that burned was one of those additions. And uh, again, there was their arguments about what's authentic in in a building. And the truth is, that what's authentic in a building is everything. That very few buildings are designed like works of art, uh, like a painting, where they where one person has an idea and and conceives a certain work of art and then executes it. Uh, most buildings change over time, functions change, some th there are mistakes made technically that have to be fixed, rectified. Uh, there are functional, new functional needs that have to be accommodated. Uh, so you have, to, you have additions made to the building over the years, but that's all part of the building, that's all it's, there isn't sort of one authentic moment and everything else is somehow inauthentic or fake. I think great architecture is, is, a, is always an amalgamation of all these things of many, many artists, many creative talents. Uh, and what's, I think it's very, it's very 
good that the French government finally came around to recognizing that. Um, there's still going to be a lot of debate for good reason. For example, the roof, the original roof of Notre Dame is lead uh, slates. Uh, when they burnt and melted, it produced all kind of very noxious fumes. And there's real concern about how, you know, what should we do? Should we replace the lead? Which is, the good thing about lead is it lasts a long time. But on the, the bad thing is that, uh, as we saw in the fire, it, it's, it can produce uh, all sorts of really very unhealthy uh, fumes that, we're, I think we don't even understand exactly what the total effects were. So it's not easy, and I think there's going to be more debates about issues like that. But I think the fact that they decided to, to replace the wooden structure with a wooden structure, uh, which will be very similar to what was there, uh, and that they're going to rebuild the steeple as it was. I think all of those are very positive things. Uh, and, uh, part, they, and, and very kind of sensible, common sense things. It's very rare that a building is destroyed and then replaced with something radically different. It's much more common in the history of architecture that people have, especially buildings they like, I think that was one of the problems with the World Trade Center is that the two buildings were destroyed. On the one hand, you could have simply replaced them, which in some ways would have been a good solution. The problem was people didn't like the original buildings enough to do that. I think if they had been greatly beloved buildings, we might have taken a different route uh, than we did. But since there was a real question mark about this building, many people didn't really see them as attractive buildings that they would miss. Like, for example, if, if this had happened to the Chrysler building or the Empire State building, it would have been much more difficult to say, oh, we'll just build something new. Uh, because would something new be as good as what was there before? If we look at the the building that replaced the World Trade Center towers, it's really a question mark. I'm not sure that's a better building. I wasn't an admirer of those two buildings, but what's there now is hardly better. So uh, Notre Dame, I think, will be a, a happy ending to that story, to that unhappy event that, that caused all that damage. Well, thank you, Vitold, for, for coming on the podcast again to talk about your wonderful new book. Thank you. It's been enjoyable. The book, again, is The Story of Architecture by my guest, Vitold Rybczynski, and it is available now wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening. Please visit us online at yalebooks.com for more episodes of this podcast as well as information about all of our books. <laughs>